You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. We're back. This is going to be part two. Steve Shirk and I have uh, talked a little bit beforehand. We've got Andy May on the line. Uh, Andy's new to the podcast. He's a I believe he's from Michigan. I know he hunts all over the place. Um, he's really kind of a get-it-done kind of guy, and I've heard other people talk about Andy quite often. Very efficient hunter, hunts a lot of states. He's got to maximize his time in a field, and I think that's going to be pretty relevant to a lot of people. I'm, you know, I focus on efficiency of hunting and time in a field, and how many hunts you you can take to get it done. Those are all important attributes of, you know, my situation, and I think a lot of people can relate to that as well. So let me get everybody on the line here. Hey, Steve, are you on? Yes, sir. I'm still here, thankfully. Good goodness. So Steve's got a little bit, uh, I guess, uh, shoddy signal right now. He's uh, on the field, and we've got Andy, and hopefully Andy's got good signal. Andy, May, are you on, sir? Yes, I'm, uh, I should be good to go. Yep. Wonderful. All right, so it's a pleasure to have you both on. Steve's running the show today asking some questions, but Andy, I want you to quick inter- introduce yourself, You know, kind of tell us where you're from, and, and tell a little bit about your plans this season. Okay. Yep. Andy May. Um, I'm from Michigan, Southern Michigan, um, which is, you know, Michigan's an interesting state, but as far as Michigan goes, it's the most pressured area of the state, but it also historically has produced some of the better bucks because there's a lot of farm country and stuff around. So I deal with a lot of pressure, a lot of land access difficulties, a lot of uh, really overrun public ground um, just super, super high competition. Um, but you know, I love the grind and it's just, it's what I know and what I've, what I've done my whole life. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, as far as, uh, plans for this fall, um, I'll obviously be hunting around home here in Michigan. I, you know, I travel to get out of Michigan because it, it is a frustrating grind and, um, but at the same time, I take a lot of pride in taking a nice buck in Michigan because uh, very, very few people do on any consistent type of basis. So I, I work really hard at it, even though on average, you know, the bucks probably that I normally take around here are probably 20 to 30 inches smaller and probably a year or two younger in a lot of cases. Um, 
I, I still take a lot of pride in doing it. It's just a kind of like the ultimate challenge for me. Um, but I look forward to leaving the state <laughs> as often as possible Sure. just to experience some different things, you know, different types of terrain, varying uh, degrees of pressure, you know, med- better age structure, more bucks, that kind of thing. So um, I actually like to keep my, my seasons fairly flexible. I do have um, some tags kind of out west, like western plains type stuff, probably more so for mule deer. Um, I've kind of been bit by the mule deer bug <clears throat> the last few years. And um, kind of like, well, you, I'm sure you guys can relate when you first got into whitetail hunting and it was new and fresh and you were kind of in that learning phase where you're making a lot of mistakes and all you do is think about it and talk about it. Well, that's kind of how I am with mule deer right now. I still am with whitetail, but like a mule deer is the new thing where I feel like I'm, you know, learning exponentially, you know, with every experience. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, but I have, you know, whitetail tags in, uh, you know, Michigan, I'll hunt Ohio. I hunt Ohio every year. I live pretty close to the border and, um, not sure if I'll head out east. Um, possibly. Um, there's most years, or at least every other year, I head out to one of the eastern states. Um, I have not bought a tag yet, but that's pretty much my plan right now. Just kind of hunt around home. You know, if tags get filled quickly, you know, then I could end up just about anywhere. And if it's more of a struggle, I might just might just stick around home and, and try to get it done. So it really, it just kind of depends. I don't really plan a whole lot ahead. I like to keep things really flexible and just see how my season goes. Sure. Uh, obviously, Andy, uh, you've, uh, you know, you've kind of discussed that you said you, you hunt several states and um, I like the fact that you kind of keep things open-minded and kind of just wing it and sometimes just go on a hunch that's how I hunt it although I'm not really able to travel like you and some other guys but kind of what I want to get into today is in my opinion uh you're one of the select few amount of guys that like kills really big deer in places where like you mentioned highly pressured or just unlikely I mean we're not just talking mature deer but like you've killed I mean just some really, really big high scoring deer, some really tough places. Um, I, I want to kind of pick your brain on some of your strategies that you've done to do this and have success. And, uh, especially some of those few deer that I sent you pictures of and questions. Um, Mm -hmm. I, uh, if, if you could like, are you more of like a, uh, like a rut hunter early season? Like what, what's, what's your favorite time of year? Hmm. Yeah, no, I would definitely say I'm not more of a rut hunter. Um, I, you know, I, I feel like I utilize the whole entire season and it's just a crapshoot on when, you know, when I'm going to get my opportunity. Um, I kind of, I guess early on, I would say 75% of my success would be you know, in those first, oh, you know, those first two weeks of November. And then, you know, I guess I relied more on the rut to get my opportunity and I hunted more like volume, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, just, just putting in the time and, and trying to just be out there as much as possible so that I was able to experience that rut magic when it, (laughs) when it happened. Um, But a lot less skill involved and more persistence. And then as I, you know, as I got better and I tried to learn more and I met guys and talked to guys that were like killing big bucks early in the season and in mid October and late season, I was just like, huh, okay, I definitely have some, I definitely have some holes in my game, you know, and I, I've always had that mindset of, I just want to keep improving. I don't, yep. I think a lot of guys want success, you know, it doesn't really matter how it comes, if it's the rut, if it's over a bait pile, if it's, you know, with outfitters or whatever, I've never had that mindset. I don't want the success. I actually want to get better at this. And I've always had that. And there's been certain things my whole life, even when I was a kid, there's certain things that I just locked onto, whether it was a sport or 
a hobby or whatever, I kind of get locked onto it. And then I just want to get really good at it. Not necessarily yep. just rack up numbers. Um, yep. so I really started focusing on trying to learn how some of these guys were getting it done early season. Cause that was like a big hole for me, you know, just killing <laughs> bucks in those first, that first week of the season. So I really started just ramping up my scouting and, and really trying to zero in on some target animals during that time of the year. And now, you know, for the last, you know, several years, many years, um, I'm always in the game with, with a good buck for the opener, like always. So, and, but I do that because I prepare and I, I really focus a lot of time on zeroing in on one or two animals to, to go after. You know, sure. and then, and then that kind of, that mid-October frame where a lot of guys struggle, um, you know, I started putting more emphasis on that instead of just kind of sitting back and waiting for the rut or, or just kind of going out there and wishing and hoping I f- put a, a more emphasis on like in-season scouting, you know, running some cameras, looking for fresh sign, um, going back to some of those spots that I had scouted like postseason where I had found some like, you know, some really good mature buck beds. And then kind of scouting those perimeter edges to see if I could find sign that told me that something was in there, or, you know, in the neighborhood. And then I started, you know, I started having more success during that time of year, having more encounters consistently with good deer because I had prepared and I had, you know, gone out and, and searched for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the same could be said for late season too. You know, it's just kind of, I go back to that kind of early season pattern is although things are much more delicate, obviously late because you, you lose a lot of the cover and, and that. So, uh, that's a long winded answer to your question. No, but, um, yeah, I, I, my kills are very, um, spread out and very kind of well-rounded now. And I've, I've done that by design. I've done that because I wasn't that way always. And I wanted to be kind of an effective hunter all throughout the season. So I never wanted to pigeonhole myself into the rut. Yep. Um, the rut, the rut in Michigan is, is absolutely terrible. I mean, it's, 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 it's awful. Um, you know, we have a lot of, a lot of does, not a lot of bucks and certainly very, very few mature deer. And they just don't, they just don't need to go search. They don't need to fight. They don't need to cruise. It's just, they, they go from one to the next and you hardly oh. ever see a, a big mature buck out cruising or searching or chasing. And it just, it's just, it's, it's wild. So um, really imbalanced, very imbalanced, very imbalanced. And, you know, just a lot of people out there pinballing the deer around and, and, uh, you know, the movement gets kind of shut down and condensed really quickly once opening day comes. So yeah, I've had a, I had a lot of luck, um, you know, the last 10, 15 years kind of spread out through the entire season. Well, that's, that's what we, what I really am intrigued also by you is you're the kind of guy that's got it done and, all kinds of different places, different times of year. Um, I would say this time of year we're still kind of in the early season. Mm-hmm. I know you killed a few big deer early. If you could maybe think of a certain deer you killed this time of year, and what did you do to to uh, to make that happen, and uh, kind of give the listeners maybe uh, a little bit of uh, you know an outlook on what they could do to have have some success like you had. Sure. Yeah. I've killed quite a few bucks, um, either opening day or in that first, you know, that first two or three days of the season in several States. Um, it really depends, you know, if it's a state that offers glassing, I love that. You know, if, if you got some open fields or some secluded bean fields like Kentucky, there's, um, I haven't hunted there in a few years, but I used to go down there quite often for early season and, and, got a couple of kills on some nice bucks and then, you know, just wanted to try something different. And, um, you know, down where I was hunting, there was hills and big timber, but there was, a, it was also broken up into some, some ag fields and you could kind of get off the road a little bit and get these little different vantage points where you could kind of glass into these likely spots where, you know, big bucks like to come out in the beans, the little inside corners or these little, you know, dips in the field, these little low spots that you can't always see right from the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, you know, there was quite a few, um, quite a few examples of that where I just used more of a glassing technique observed and then moved in for the kill. Um, 
one that comes into my comes to mind from uh, Michigan. It's pretty cool. This is on a, actually a, a permission spot, and I had just knocked on this door and you know asked the guy, uh, you know, hey, you mind if I would do any bow hunting out here? I don't gun hunt. And the guy was like, sure. He's like, but there's other guys that hunt out here, and that's kind of that's kind of the the name of the game out here. Like the the permission stuff that I do have is every bit as pressured, if not more pressured than the public. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty wild. So it's, it's a really difficult scenario because so you're limited to like a, you know, a 20 or 30 acre track of land. So you're, you're, you're boxed in mm-hmm. and then also <laughs> it's high pressure. So it's a, it's kind of like the ultimate difficult scenario in a lot of cases. <laughs> um, but anyway, this, this guy, you know, was nice enough to give me permission. This was like a, a day or two before the season. Um, just happened to drive by. Um, I, I had driven by that area, you know, several times in the summer and saw some nice bucks out in some nearby fields. So I, I wanted to ask this guy. His farm was a mix of swamp, marsh, hardwoods, and then some fields. And the fields were in standing corn. So um, this was back, man, this was back 2001. Um, and I was really just kind of honing in on like my mobile approach. You know, I had like a, I can't remember if I had a lone wolf at that time, but I had, you know, I had a stand that was like my mobile stand. I had it all taped up with, you know, electrical tape and stuff and <laughs> trying to keep it quiet. But anyway, I went in like, um, the day before, I think it was the day before the season. And I was just scouting the transition edges between like the hardwoods and the standing corn and then that marsh. And I cut a, a set of buck tracks, uh, actually two sets of buck tracks coming out of the, the marsh and into the standing corn. It looked like they were kind of crossing through the corn. And then I followed them for a while and then they, they hit this hedgerow and then they ended up crossing a road over to like some green bean fields. So I pretty much just set up on the, the sign. You know, I, I, even back then it kind of made sense to me. It's like, okay, they're bedded in the swamp somewhere, but I didn't know like what I know now, like now I could probably look at an aerial and like pinpoint you know, where those deer were bedded just based off the sign and the direction they were coming out of. And, and then I didn't really have that knowledge. So I set, I kind of set up on the edge there where the standing corn was for opening night. Um, I had a good wind and sure enough, these two bucks, two mature bucks too. This is still probably the best set I've ever had in Michigan. And it was, you know, over 20 years ago now. And, um, these big two, uh, two big mature bucks come out of this marsh and they came through the standing corn. I saw them working through the standing corn and they came under me and I had my choice of the two. And it was just wild. The two, two biggest bucks I've ever seen together in Michigan. They were both, they were both, you know, right around 150 inches, which is just an absolute giant for here. Wow. And I shot the bigger one. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Obviously, uh, the, the one that was a little wider, a little bigger. Um, but that was a, a good example of just, like, kind of, you know, scouting and, and setting up on the fresh sign. Um, yep. You know, there's, there's lots of early season kills that have been more from, you know, maybe a trail cam picture that I got, and then I kind of made an estimation or, or, like I said, sitting back glassing. But I like those ones, the ones where I actually go in and I'm not relying on an electronic or – or something like that where I go in and I kind of read the sign and make a decision off of the sign. That's, that's what, that's what I'm best at. That's my strength is when I'm, you know, take the trail cameras and stuff away and, and let me just go in and try to figure it out on my own. When I start throwing trail cameras in there, all I do like them. (laughs) I do like them and they do teach me a lot, but, um, I think that they can sometimes skew my decision-making and I don't like that. Um, yeah. Cause obviously deer is not always watching in front of your camera too. That's, that's right. Yeah. And I think you can kind of get married to a picture and, and whatnot. Now they're great for in- inventory and great for kind of telling you what, what that buck might be. That's leaving that sign or that's in that area. But, uh, that's kind of my favorite way to hunt. And when I travel, um, that's how I hunt. I don't use any trail cameras or anything. It's just all kind of going off sign, observation, instincts, that sort of thing. And that's, that's my favorite way to hunt. But 
do you do you focus like on big buck sign though? Obviously, like you see a big track, but because you've killed some, you know, absolute giants in these unfamiliar places, like did you know you were there was a big deer in there, or like how what really led you to success? Yeah. Um, so it, it just depends, you know, those, those three pictures you sent me, um, two of them I knew about one of them. I didn't, you know, one was just a classic rut sit in a, a funnel that had a lot of things coming together. And, um, you know, just, I just planned on putting in my time and it just so happened that I, I killed him my first time in, but I think what made that, <laughs> what I think what made that spot so good is that I just stayed out of it. You know, I stayed out of it until the time was right, which was, I believe that one, it was, I'm trying to remember. I think that was like kind of that second week of November, probably like the 10th, 12th, somewhere in there. And uh, that one was a while ago. But, um, you know, it was just it was just staying out, like, you know, staying out, letting the, the doe traffic and, and letting that area just stay unmolested and then you get the conditions right and the timing is right. And then you slip in and you have an awesome sit, you know, and that's one of those spots where it just has a lot coming together. It was next to a bedding, two major travel routes kind of crisscrossed right there. So it was an area where it's an area where there's a lot of deer traveling through. So big bucks, big mature bucks can gather a lot of information in one spot. And that's, Mm -hmm. I don't always look for that, but that's one of the main things I look for during the rut is those spots where a lot of things come together, where a buck can go and be really efficient and gather a lot of information from a lot of different areas in one single spot. And that seems to be, um, a really, really high percentage spot for me. You know, sometimes I find myself on, you know, the downwind side of doe bedding or, you know, at a, a funnel between, you know, two big bedding areas or, you know, on the leeward side of the ridge up above a, a big drainage where I know, you know, has a lot of points for bedding. But when you can find one of those areas that also has, you know, it's also a travel route from like bed to feed. And then you also have like, you know, some, some doe bedding up top and maybe a water hole close by and just all these things that kind of concentrate um, mm-hmm. a lot of different movement. Um, a buck can go there and he can scent check that or travel through there and know, you know, get, gather a lot of information of all the deer in the area, what's traveled through. And he doesn't have to like go to all those spots individually. Um, I'll tell you a quick, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, so this will be a better description, but a buck I killed in Iowa a few years ago, this spot, if you looked at it and you went and scouted it, you'd, you'd never hunt it because there was hardly any sign. There was one primary scrape in there, very few rubs, not a lot of deer activity in general as far as, like, buck activity. Um, and even the doe trails and stuff weren't, like, crazy. It was this was a pass-through property, bedding to the south, big food across the road to the north. Um, but what it had was um, with a south wind, you know, you had – you could be on the downwind side of this major bedding area, one of the biggest, most substantial bedding areas in the whole area. And then this property consisted of these three like ditches, these drainages that ran north and south. So then you had, they served as like travel routes going to the north where all the crops were. So now you had three major travel routes going from north to south, you know, running, running north, south. And then right in the middle of that middle drainage was a big primary scrape. So I had downwind side of bedding if I hunted it on a south wind, which I did. That's one thing I look for and I love. At least where I come from, that's a pretty common wind too, so that helps too. Yep, yep. So, um, you know, I was was downwind of, you know, downwind of some big substantial bedding area, which is going to concentrate buck movement anyway during the rut. But then it's yeah. also serving as bed to feed travel. There's these three ditches that are funneling movement down. So I have two things now that are overlapping that are great during the rut, you know, that bucks would key in on. And then in the middle one, there's a big primary scrape, which was more active in that kind of mid to late October time frame, And it was kind of dying down a little bit. You know, when I was hunting it, I ended up killing November 6th. 
but it's still it's still a point of interest because the bucks can still gather information from that scrape. You know, yep. does pass through it, other bucks, and all this stuff was in one area. So it was three three main things right there where a buck can travel through there and and gather information from all those different those different scenarios. It was just a it had all overlapped when especially when you had a south wind when you could be on that downwind side of the bedding. So um go ahead. Oh I was just gonna say are like are you the kind of guy like that's just surprising that you know so much deer activity in there and just minimal sign like are you the kind of guy that you know you don't always need obviously need to see that sign just kind of rely on the hunch that you have and just all the the whole science of it really starts to add up and you know being yeah. proving enough where you just you just know from experience i guess yeah so that's a good question because this spot if you were just going off sign you would never sit this spot but you're going off you're going off tendencies of mature buck behavior and where do they seek out during the rut? This was November 6th. So what, what are, what are big bucks doing at November 6th? They're not really working scrapes as much anymore. That starts to die off at least in this area. Um, they're still hitting them, but they're not like hitting them like they were a week ago or two weeks ago, but they are monitoring, especially the primary scrapes. So I got a, I got a primary scrape there that they're monitoring. I got a bed to feed funnel. You know, that bucks weren't really using, at least the sign wasn't telling me they were, but does were. Okay, so now I got a bed to feed funnel. We all we always already know that that's a, a decent something to, to key in, a de- decent spot to key in on during the rut. Yep. You know, it can funnel movement down. Bucks will cross that perpendicular and, and check those trails. They won't necessarily go up and down the trails. They'll cross-section them, and they can gather all that information of all those does that traveled through there. And then, I'm, and then I'm also on the downwind side of the, the major bedding area. So that's three things right there. It's all terrain. You know, I wasn't worried about the sign because bucks weren't leaving the amount of sign, you know, uh, during that time of year. Like in November, they're like, they're trying to gather information. They're trying to find where those hot does are. So my experience told me that, like, these are three things right here that bucks gravitate to towards during the rut and all three of them are in the same spot or they overlap in the same general area. So I knew that that would just gravitate bucks. Yeah, so, and I think if, if you don't mind, if I can just add to that, uh, in the rut, especially when things really get cranking, um, I mean, sign can be good, but the thing is, is a buck's not making a rubber scrape every step he takes. I mean, there's massive stretches of terrain and area that, he's passing through pretty consistently and not making signs. So, uh, as you were talking, you know, you know, throughout the rut and I think, uh, you do have to rely on, um, just the fact of knowing how deer travel, especially mature bucks and, and definitely, uh, just being able to learn and, and, uh, go, you know, go with your gut on, on some of these setups. So I just kind of want to make sure that the listeners were able to understand that. Sure. I would concentrate more on buck sign early in the season, mid-October, late October, and even that, that beginning part of November. And I, I always want, I always like to be around buck sign, but really a lot of that, that sign is when, you know, that they're laying down is telling me, okay, there's a buck working through this area or there's a buck living on this ridge or there's a buck living in the swamp. This was like, this was like key to the rut. But now this is an area where I, I don't have any knowledge of it's out of state and I'm looking for, I'm thinking funnels. I'm thinking, you know, primary scrapes, dough bedding. And this particular spot had all of that right there. And no, the big buck sign wasn't there, but again, you know, that sign that they leave during that time of year is so sporadic. You know what I mean? They might be traveling over here and they run into another buck and they leave a rub. Yeah, that could be it. Could be meaningless. He was just there traveling through that spot, and he may never go through that spot again. So, there's there comes a point where I switch, not necessarily switch completely from reading sign, but like I will focus more on like terrain and the type of funnels and terrain features that I like to hunt like during the rut. Right, if that makes and, sense. 
Yeah, no, and I mean, we're trying to, we could probably really dial into this even more and more, and I know we're getting, you know, close to our ending point, but one thing that the, one of the biggest things I was most intrigued by some of the, you know, stuff and content that you put out, like on your Instagram, like that one deer, and I'm, I'm sure you probably already brought it up. I don't know exactly which state you shot it, but it was a giant, but when, you said something like you only had two and a half days to go to this place and hunt. And, and like, to me, like not many people would ever travel to hunt somewhere when they only have like two and a half days and to go mm-hmm. in there and have success. Like how, what made you go knowing you had minimal time, but still have confidence. So, yeah, that's funny because I work at a school, so I don't get vacation time. Um, I get to hunt weekends and then we get uh, one personal day a year that we can use for whatever we want. Everything else, you know, is like I can call in sick, you know, on a Friday or whatever and stretch it out three days. So my whole, my whole career, once I started traveling was weekend trips. And so I'm, you know, weekend, maybe call in sick on a Monday or use a personal day or whatever. It was, you know, two, three, four day trips, but I just never, I never really thought about like, Oh, I'll never get it done in three days. It's not worth it. I just figured like, I want to experience other things. So I'm just going to go for it. And I, I always looked at it. Like if I do that two years in a row, well, that's almost a week. You know, if I did, (laughs) if I did two years in a row, three days, that's like a week, you know? Mm -hmm. So what I started doing is just taking these little short trips and then we're like, okay, you know, I'll, if I need to come back another weekend, I will. And, um, it, it, I think there's so many dynamics to this. It's hard to like grasp in like a 30 minute podcast, but like, Oh, absolutely. Yep. Michigan in Michigan. Um, I think guys probably, you know, that come from pressured States can relate to this. It, it's, it's difficult to get it done here. It takes a lot of, of effort. It takes a lot of searching and you learn to get really, you learn to have a really detailed approach. And mm-hmm. it was a really good, I always call it a really good training ground because it's still to this day, the most difficult state I've hunted to take a mature buck. So once I started traveling to these other States, I was shocked at how far deer moved in daylight. I was shocked at the number of two year old bucks and older I was shocked at how responsive they were to calls. I was shocked at how um, generous they were about the mistakes you made. And that's been across the board every single state I've hunted besides Michigan. Now, there's, <laughs> there's, there's certainly varying degrees of that. You know, I've hunted spots in Missouri that were extremely pressured in Ohio and, you know, and some other ones. But it was a really good training ground so that when I started going to these other states, it was like, wow, this is like a whole nother world. And I, and I had started having success immediately, even with only a couple days. And I'm not saying they were all giants. They started out, you know, I've, I'm sure killed some two-year-old deer and some three-year-old deer. and um, But it, it gave me the confidence to go. And what I think, I think what I, my approach that's a little different is um, when you're forced to a small window, to have success. You know, if you, if you put yourself in that scenario nine hours from home and you got three days to get it done, you hunt different mm-hmm. than if, than you would if you had an entire season. So I am ultra aggressive. I'm very in the face, go out and search and search until I find what I want. If that means bumping the buck, that's fine. Cause now I'm in the game with them. If yep. it's, if it's, um, you know, just scouting until I find that red hot sign, that's, that's good, you know, or if I just, you know, use the glass and slip through the cover or whatever. And then I spot one, I always say, I need to, I need to spot one, bump one, or find the red hot sign that tells me this is the spot. Either, any of those things, I feel like put me in a position for a, a good hunt. That's higher percentage than if I were to like take the normal approach of, okay, I got the whole season and I'm going to sit back. I'm going to hunt when the wind and the weather is right and all this stuff. But I don't do that on those short handcuffed trips. I get in there and I mix it up and I've done that for so long. And so often I've started to get really good at it and I've trusted my instincts and it's very, I have a very like in your face, in their face 
type approach. I was talking to my buddy about it. It's like, that's, I think that's why I get so many good buck encounters is because I literally go like root them up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but I've, but I've gotten pretty good. Like with my instincts to know, like, okay, I'm getting close. All right. The sign is telling me to set up here or, you know, I play the wind a lot of times. And if I bump them, okay, I, you know, I think they're going to circle back and come back through and, and check this out. Where can I set up to kind of kept catch them coming back or if I bump them hard okay where's the next logical spot they're going to be you know and then I start working that area so it's 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 stemmed from just a lot of years of doing it and making a ton of mistakes and just getting better and learning from those mistakes and um that particular buck um you know I I did have two days I had two days it was it was a 550 well Maybe not. Maybe four ninety five, four ninety five dollar tag, but um, two days in any other state is better than a season <laughs> in Michigan, and and I, I'm telling you a hundred percent. Not not any other state, but like that that's that particular one you're talking about was Illinois, and oh, okay. my my chance of of a mature deer with two days in Illinois is way higher than an entire season in Michigan. And, um, this was, uh, it was one of those spots where again, you know, it's, it was, it was later in November, like mid November. And one of those spots where it's just a, a wonderful funnel between two giant bedding areas. And then it was right along this river and, right where I was set up, I set up right in this funnel. It was, it was awesome because it connected, it actually connected like a major food source, a bedding area. And then this, this river really pinched this funnel down and then another giant bedding area to the West. But it also, I was set up on the major crossing of that river. So I was had, I had like a major travel West to East and then an also a major travel, one of the main crossing spots of this pretty good sized river right in mm-hmm. front of me. So it was, again, one of those things where you had multiple things coming together. And I just was going to sit dark to dark. You know, I had a good win for it. I was going to sit dark to dark. And uh, I killed that buck pretty early in the hunt. Um, So, you know, I don't always get it done when I go on those short trips. But I've, you know, I probably also, you know, I probably don't have as high as standards as, you know, like if you went out there for, and you had seven to 10 days, you're probably going to have a little bit higher standards than me that has three days to hunt. You know what I mean? So, so that opens up some opportunities for me too. Yes. That deer that you're thinking about was a, was a very high scoring deer, but if a 135 would have came through, I probably just shot him. So, (laughs) so, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those deals where it's like, given the amount of time I have, um, you know, the confidence level, the area I'm at, what kind of deer, you know, what caliber of deer in the area, I'll adjust my goals accordingly. I am not a score guy. I don't care what they score. I don't even score most of my deer. But, um, you know, I I do like to try to take an, an older animal, you know, or a larger wrecked animal, but it doesn't always have to be the biggest bull in the woods by any means. I mean, I like hunting deer. Um, but yeah, I think that it's that aggressive approach. And, you know, I, I was talking to my buddy about it, like, cause I've been on two big bucks, uh, one in Ohio and one in Michigan already. And, um, I, I I'm shocked that I don't have one of these deer killed because I, <laughs> I, I am sh- too. I'm shocked you don't have them killed. <laughs> I should, I should have, but I, I totally like, you know, I pushed it till the encounter happened. And, you know, these two didn't go in my favor. So it, it certainly yeah. doesn't go always in my favor. And I was talking to my buddy Luke. I was like, yeah, I totally andied it. You know, I andied that place. So, like, it's it's screwed up. So <laughs> it's like I, I push the issue until I either get them killed or I usually spook them out of the area and ruin that spot. Like, that's that has become my style, and it's become very efficient because I've actually gotten good at getting them killed. Where – where a lot of guys might be like, you know, they might hunt the edges and hunt outside in and it's kind of do this and that. Like I will do that too when I have the time, but like these two, 
deer in particular, um, it was early season. They were there now. You know, they're going to break up from these bachelor groups at any day, relocate any day. Like, I got to make it happen now or it's not going to happen. So it was that was more of my approach. And I, I totally uh, I totally didn't get it done and totally kind of blew them out. So, well, I know. mean, that, that's all part of it. And uh, you're not telling me anything that I've never done either. So <laughs> yeah. I'm sure... I'm sure it won't be long, and I'll be seeing that photo uh, with a good one in, in your hands. But, uh, John, is there anything that you'd like to ask or add to it? I know we're we're probably getting into this pretty far, but uh, just wanted to check in with you. Yeah, no, that's good, uh, Andy. You're interesting to listen to. Uh, I, I kind of like your aggressive tactics, uh, the instinctive hunting style. You know, I, I like the way that you broke down specific areas at times. It's, it's almost like a Venn diagram where how you're co-locating or thinking about specific attributes and, and their draw at certain times. Uh, the aggressive behavior that you have, either it's culturally ingrained in you or you created it based on whatever your past has been. And I think a lot of people mm-hmm. aren't as aggressive. I think that's that's a good thing. Um, you and I have a lot of overlap listening to this podcast. I mean, I'm a New York guy, so um, our and it sounds like you're hunting block timber in Michigan, but some of these other states, you know, that aggressive nature changes a little bit based on your environment and your time. And I think that's good. You kind of dialogued a little bit about that. Um, Mm -hmm. The only question I have for you, and this is something we talked a little bit with Johnny about was, you know, I I think, you know, terrain is a big thing for me and uh, diagnosing terrain features. And he used uh, basically, you know, three criteria. One of those is inaccessibility and finding areas that are they're hard to hunt, hard to access. And that, and that tendency, you know, to, to focus on usually more the mature deer, they, they pick those key locations out. I just want to hear like maybe a quick situation where you've had an area that you've diagnosed that might be almost impossible to hunt. Um, and then you've had, you know, the Andy May aggressive, you know, the Andy style killing uh, where you've you've gone after something like that, where it's almost inaccessible, it's hard to get to, but you've pushed the limits. Yeah. Have you had any examples like that? Oh yeah, I got I got an example that just happened last week because Good. this uh, well this is a this is a very unique area um, and probably something I'm guessing neither of you guys have encountered um, just because it's really unique to like certain parts of the, the country. But this particular area is Pancake Flat. Um, there's not a hill in sight for miles and miles and miles. And there is like almost no cover. I'm not talking like Kansas where there's CRP and little drainage ditches. There's like the only cover is hedgerows and these little tiny like square or rectangle woodlots. And those are often, uh, two acres, four acres, six acres. And most of those are mature timber and you can see right through them. And then there's the, these little skinny hedgerows, these little drainage ditches or, you know, that kind of where the, so the field runoff can go into, um, it's extremely wide open, very limited cover, low deer density. Um, and hunting pressure is high to the amount of cover that's available in this particular area. Like deer drives are really popular. So the, the, gun hunters are extremely effective at driving and killing these deer because there's just nowhere for them to hide. Um, so I happen to, um, you know, now this time of year is best because there's some fields that are in standing corn. Uh, this is aggressively farmed area, very aggressively farmed. Um, it, like knock out hedgerows, knock out every tree imaginable. And there's just like hardly anything left. But there are a few deer around, and occasionally there's a good one around. And um, there was this bachelor group of bucks with two shooters, um, one in particular that I really, really wanted. And I had glassed him um, several times from the summer. And, you know, this this deer, nobody even knew about this deer because nobody will get out of their car to glass. Everybody thinks they need to glass from their car, but this deer is not visible from a road. So... I would have to walk through um, quite a bit of open ground along uh, a standing cornfield and I could get to the edge of that standing cornfield and that put me about 200 yards from this little tiny woodlot that is exactly 4.3 acres and it's a perfect rectangle. And then all around that woodlot is nothing but beans. Um, 
So it's completely wide open, completely isolated little island out there. And um, I first glassed this these this group from that standing cornfield, like I said, 200 yards away. And there was there was a group of like I don't know five or six bucks, two of them that were really really nice, one in particular. And uh, I just was like, okay, you know, this this spot I have history with a spot, and normally on any given year. The bucks are in there during summer, they're bachelored in there, and then they usually are broken up and have left before the season opener. But we had a little bit of earlier season opener here, and the crops got in late, so there was still, like, crops were up. A lot of times they're cutting them or they're cut by the time the opener has already happened, and then they just push those deer out. There's nothing for them anymore. So there's, like... Sometimes when there's like beans around or there's corn around, like they feel a little more insulated in these little tiny ditches and these little, little wood lots. But once that all starts coming down, they just get pushed off and they go to, you know, they'll go miles, miles to like a private farm that has a good river bottom or there's some like metro parks and stuff like five, six miles away that they'll migrate to. But anyway, so as you can imagine, um, you can't really get to that woods without being detected or it would be extremely hard. So in that type of country, bucks trike like a bed um, on the downwind side of these woodlots facing downwind, facing the open. And then they got the wind coming in, you know, from the backside. So if you try to access with the wind in your face, they see you. If you try to access from the backside, they smell you. And then if you try to access from the sides, that would be the normal approach. But you can't even set foot into the woods without them knowing because it's so small and it's so wide open. So you're really, really handcuffed. Um, so <laughs> I think what most guys would do is they would, you know, put the wind in their face and not really know how the deer bed in these locations. And they would just kind of try to sneak up to the woods. Well, these deer see you coming from 200 yards away and they're gone. You know, you never knew, you never knew, even knew they were there and you don't see anything that night and you're like, oh, they're not here, but they were. So I've made that mistake enough and that's why I know. Um, so the, 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 usually the, the play is to try to come in from the side, but in this this scenario, this four acre woods, which is three quarters of it is like a park effect. Like you can literally see through it. You can't, unless you had like a really, really windy day you can't even set foot into that woods without them knowing it's just too tight and uh, it's too crunchy and everything else. Maybe a rain, a really windy day, you could, you could maybe pull that off. But again, you got to get into that woods and have them not smell you. And how do you do that? Like if you sneak in from the side and you're a little upwind of them, right? Cause the wind is coming over their back and it's just a little tiny patch of cover. It's really difficult. So what I did was um, opening day, um, I actually glad I set up in my glassing spot with my bow, and I was just gonna watch them and see if like what they did, and see if there uh, any way to cut them off. And um, they came out of the woods. They did normally what they they have been doing, and they kind of leave the woods and they just go out into this big open wide expanse of bean field. I can't find any weakness in them. So the next day, um, I come out there and I take the decoy and, uh, I've, I've actually killed, you know, three or four bucks, three or four nice, big, mature bucks using a decoy. One, one with a hard body decoy, like a big one. And then, a, um, a few with like the heads up decoy. And, uh, I feel very, very confident with that thing in the right situation. So I always kind of have it on standby. And this is one of those scenarios where I thought, you know, this might be the play here because I, I have to somehow get them to come to me. Well, I get out there and, um, it's, it's a, the wind's whipping pretty good. And I glass, I, I get to my spot. I'm 200 yards from the woods and I glass the woods and I, you know, it's, it's early. It's like four 30. I don't see anything. I just give it a quick once over. And then I start dinking around on my phone like an idiot. And, um, you know, answering some emails and stuff. And then it gets to be about five 30 and I'm like, okay, I'm putting the phone away. I'm going to concentrate. Well, I start really like picking apart the area with the glass. And all of a sudden I looked right on that woods edge and I had missed it before. And there's just this giant rack and he's bedded 
right on the woods edge on the shady side, you know, facing downwind, facing me. And it's the big buck, the one I really want. Um, just a perfect, perfect bedding location, like right on the edge, facing downwind, wind coming over his back. No way to approach under normal circumstances, except it's windy. You know, the winds are like 17 plus, and there's a ditch. I, I talk about those little drainage ditches that are on the edges of the fields. There's a ditch that runs is right on my right-hand side, right on the edge of that corn that runs right to where this buck is bedded. So I'm like, okay, you know, I got a decision here. There's a, there's one tree on the back side of that woods. It kind of comes off like a little, I don't even want to call it a hedgerow. It's a, a string of like five or six trees that comes out of that woods that I thought would be, if I could get to that tree with an easterly wind, I think that might be a, a, you know, a kill tree. I think I might be able to kill him there. And the next day, not, not, the current day, but the next day I had a good wind to sit that spot. And that's how I initially thought I was going to kill him. And, uh, I would have just had to like kind of crawl in from the side, you know, and in approach and get in one of those trees that was off the woods edge and just be really, really quiet when I climbed up it. So I'm faced with the decision, like, okay, drop down in this ditch and try to sneak up and shoot him while he's bedded or wait tomorrow for the wind I've been hoping for and do the more safer approach. And this is totally my style. <laughs> like my style is like, no sneaking up on him and shooting him in his bed would be badass. And I'm on a, and I want to try it, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and you know, even though the, the odds of doing that are less, it's just like, I felt like it was an opportunity. Like I want to try it. You know what I mean? Like I, I felt like, the safe play, the cookie cutter play is to wait for the perfect way and get in that tree and, and hopefully, you know, you get a shot at him. But it's like, I just kept thinking to myself, like a more skilled hunter could pull this off and I kind of want to test and see if I can do it, you know? And that's really ultimately what made my decision. One, one of my setbacks was I know there's going to be other bucks bedded with this deer and I don't know where they're at. I can't see them. So I knew that was a risk, but I also knew like how often do you have, I the biggest typical you've seen in a few years bedded on a windy day where you can see them and there's a ditch running right to them. You know, that doesn't happen that often. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to pass up that opportunity. I just thought it would be freaking sweet, you know, to try. And, uh, so I'm like, screw it. I'm doing it. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to sneak in to a hundred yards and I'm going to reassess. And if it, I'm too loud, if it just doesn't feel right, I'm going to back out and no harm, no foul. So I dropped down in there and this ditch is not clear of debris. It's actually like knee high grass, some portions it's chest high grass. So it is kind of noisy going through, but the wind is working with me and I start working down and I get to about a hundred yards and I kind of peek up over and I see a buck that I hadn't seen before, which is the second biggest buck, which is a big giant mature eight. And I'm like, oh, wow, he's already up on his feet and he's scraping and stuff. And no clue I'm there. So I'm like, all right, I'm going up, you know, 20, 30 yards further. So I get up to 70. And again, I just look, peek, peer over the edge and I see, still see him. I can't see the big one because there's too many weeds like in my face. So I'm like, all right, they still don't know I'm here. I'm going 20 yards further. So I get to 50, I think it was 52. And I get up on that edge and I range that eight. He was probably, he was a high 140s eight, like a stud. And uh, I range him and he's at 52. And then I know the big one is bedded to his left about 13 yards. So I figured he was about 48. And I was like, you know what? This is a good spot to be in here. Like if they work my way, if they close the gap, I'm going to let them make the mistake. You know, I'm going to let them do it. I don't want to stalk till failure. So I'm going to, I'm just going to, the wind was starting to die down too. And I just didn't want to risk it. I'm, so I'm like, I'm safe here. I'm going to sit right here and hopefully they work out towards me and give me a shot. And if they don't, if they go the opposite way towards that tree, I want to be in, I got tomorrow. So I'm sitting there and I, I honestly, I could have shot that eight, but it was, I've never passed a deer that size ever in my life. And I never <laughs> I will. <know> I <laughs> yeah. Me either. But I've, but I've also been the type where it's like, okay, I see two big bucks and the bigger one's out a little further. And then the one that's a little smaller is closer. I've always been that guy that has shot the closer one, you know? 
And not that that's happened a lot, but like I've done that before. And, you know, I was just like, you know what? I have deer that size. Like I'm waiting for the special one, you know, and if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Like I can live with it. And so as I'm sitting there, all these other bucks start popping up, you know, little bucks, little year and a half year old bucks. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is getting a little hairy. And, uh, the little bucks start feeding out in the beans towards me. I was like, okay, this is good. You know, they're, they're actually going to feed my way. So this is kind of what I want. And I just kind of, I'm starting to like reposition myself just to, to get a shot if these big ones like step out. And I'm, I feel like I'm hunkered down in the cover and one of these little bucks locks on, you know, he looks at me and he's like, his head's alert. I'm like, Oh God, you know, I know how this ends. <laughs> so, um, he, he starts doing the, you know, couple steps forward, looking, couple steps forward. And I just slowly like kind of hunker down and get my head below the, the ditch. And then I just, I literally go down to the bottom of the ditch and I just, I just like curl up in a ball and I'm just down there. I'm like, <laughs> I, I just got to let them, I got to let them lose interest and just hopefully leave, you know? Um, Cause I didn't want that buck to like eventually spook and take them all away. Well, I waited like 15 minutes. I was like, okay, I need to, I need to get up and peek. So I, I slowly, you know, just get my eyes high enough to, to, to view the area. I didn't hear a deer blow. I didn't hear a deer run, nothing. So I thought I was good, but I peeked up and everything was gone. So I was like, okay, well, he either busted me, you know, or they, they sensed he was nervous and it made them nervous and they spooked or, maybe they just got up and worked the other way. It was the way they normally go. And he just followed them, you know? So I felt like I was still in the game potentially. Um, so I snuck back out of that ditch, got to my previous location where I could see pretty much everything for the last, you know, 30 minutes of daylight. And I got back to that spot and I looked and I glassed and I'd never saw another deer that, that night. Wow. And went back the next day, had the, uh, had the good wind to sit in the killing tree, got about halfway there. The wind was swirling. So I backed out, went back around the section, got back to my original glassy spot and just glassed for the evening, not a single deer. So that there's a perfect example there of a very difficult spot to hunt. My aggressive approach, which I would do probably 10 out of 10 times, but I, in this case, I blew it. That's you know? uh, swinging for the fence. That's right. You know, I had the decoy. That was an option. Um, you know, that's, that is in my bag of tricks, the spot and stalk thing. I just love doing it. I love hunting from the ground. I love slipping around with my bow. So I feel like I put myself in the game where a lot of guys probably, you know, a, a lot of guys with less experience, that would have been a very tough nut to crack. And I felt like I was very close. And if I'm being honest, I could have shot that big eight, you know, I really could have. So, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So, we really appreciate you coming on, Andy. Uh, I definitely learned a lot today, and I, I've only met you once, but I, I hope that uh, we can maybe uh, have a few more chats, to say the least. And, uh, John, is there anything else you want to add? No, Andy, this is, this is great. Uh, like I said, what you said resonates with me and a lot of people, I'm sure, on this podcast. And, uh, you know, you rip and roaring out there and, and that aggressive state of yours, I commend you because I think that that's kind of a, an, a tactic that I think a lot of people aren't willing to do. So awesome. And I'll, I'll categorize you as a gritty grinder. You remind me of mm -hmm. a, a Northeast guy. Um, so I, I, I can I can hopefully say we, we want to have you back. I mean, it, it was incredible listening to the story. I appreciate you being vulnerable and explaining the circumstance and because I, I think a lot of people can resonate. So just want to thank you for being on the podcast uh, Steve, thank you, bud. We're going to be together next week. Uh, the next great guest we're going to have on, we'll, we'll, we'll wait till that week. And, and uh, uh, hopefully everything's going good with both you guys the rest of the hunting season. And uh, we'll check in with you, Andy. So thanks again. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. That was fun. Uh, we could definitely do one down the road, maybe one a little longer, because I know these short ones can be tough. But uh, anytime, you let me know. All you right. did great, man. So, yeah, John, just keep in touch. And, Andy, I'll definitely be following you. Now I got your number, so you might get an occasional uh, text message. Just curious to to see uh, how your season's going. So, but best of luck to you guys, and uh, can't wait to hear some success stories. All right, talk to you right. soon, guys. Sounds good. See ya. See ya. All right, bye bye. Bye. bye.
Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.